Welcome to the Progressive Money Canada podcast. Worldwide, countries and their citizens are experiencing historic levels of financial debt and a lack of money. Is all this inescapable or is there an underlying systemic factor that we can change? Join your hosts, Ed and Jeff, to explore solutions for correcting our monetary system, the most underappreciated topic of our time. This is episode five, is the PMC transition plan inflationary? We start with a recap of prior material and then go into the question of inflation and other straw men. Jeff, today I'd like to do a recap and I'll try to do that quickly by identifying the players and their interactions. And here we're concerned chiefly with the question of money creation. So the players, first of all, the taxpayer, secondly, the federal government, third, the Bank of Canada, which is the central bank, and fourth, the commercial banks, which are privately held. So let's be clear, the Bank of Canada, it's a crown corporation. It's created by the government. It actually, in this system, has a dual role. It's the lender of last resort and service provider for the federal government and for the commercial banks themselves. The first crucial interaction is between the Bank of Canada and the federal government. The federal government says we have a set of programs in this year's budget, but we don't have enough money through taxes to fund these programs. Therefore, we need money. So we're turning to you, Bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada says, no problem. I will accept the bond that you have issued and place it on the asset side of our ledger. And in return, we will give you a lump sum of money which you can use to fund your programs. The question then arises, where did we, the Bank of Canada, get that money? The answer is we created it out of nothing, and we simply made it as a keyboard entry into your account. The federal government is then on the hook to repay the principal and interest payments. But then, in the final analysis, those interest payments cannot be retained by the Bank of Canada, but are returned back to the federal government or to the taxpayer. You could phrase it that way. The second interaction is between the federal government and commercial banks. The process works that the Bank of Canada absorbs all the issues of marketable bonds and treasury bills, and then it holds auctions at the Bank of Canada. So the majority of those uh, debt instruments are allotted to primary dealers, which are largely commercial banks, and commercial banks in turn are allowed to create money to purchase those in those auctions. And there's a good paper that explains the process on the money creation page of Progressive Money Canada. So the Bank of Canada only holds about 13%, at least that was pre-pandemic, and the rest um, are auctioned off to the private banking system. You uh, put a link to the deputy governor of Bank of Canada who explains quantitative easing, who somehow explains it as a beneficial thing to keep interest rates down over the long term. I didn't really follow his argument. Can you explain what quantitative easing really is and what its true effect is? Quantitative easing is when the Bank of Canada acquires securities off the secondary market. And so what happens during QE is it increases liquidity in the banking system. And the way it does that is the Bank of Canada, in exchange for the securities that it takes off the market, creates settlement balances. So what the Bank of Canada does for the banking system, and I won't go into detail, but they went from a corridor system to a floor system, and that raised the amount of interest 
that the Bank of Canada pays to privately owned commercial banks that hold these settlement balances at the Bank of Canada. So right now it's about 3.75%. That's the policy rate. So whatever you see the overnight rate is, that's the interest rate that the Bank of Canada is paying on all those settlement balances to the banking system. So this creates liquidity in the banking system, which means banks have more money. I'm going to repeat this back to you and make sure I got it right. The Bank of Canada purchases securities, government bonds and so on, not directly from the federal government in the primary market, which which they do, but, but here you're speaking about the secondary market, so it's the bonds that are already floating out there in circulation among various institutions. So it purchases these or it acquires these securities, and in return it creates money out of nothing, to establish on the liability side of its ledger the settlement balance. Correct. The amount that the amount that it used to purchase the security. And then the entities that sold it, the Bank of Canada, the securities in the first place, these various institutions, banks and so on, they say, Hey, we're due interest. You have to pay interest on these bonds that we sold you. Yes. So the Bank of so the Bank of Canada says, Oh, okay, that's no problem. I'll create money out of nothing and pay you interest and provide you with all kinds of liquidity on these settlement balances that you have on account with us. Right. The crucial thing about that is that the commercial banks exercise their privilege to create money out of nothing in order to purchase those bonds and then they are due back the principal and interest payments. Correct. The third interaction that I want to discuss is the one between the commercial banks and the consumer or the taxpayer, that is individuals and businesses generally, this is how a majority of money comes into existence, and that is through loans for mortgages, business loans, car loans, and so on. Here again, we see uh, a third instance of where money is created as a keyboard entry out of nothing to accord to the borrower the sum of money in return for an agreement to repay the interest and the principal. Correct. The essential problem with all this from the point of view of fairness is simply that the taxpayer does not have a facility to create money out of nothing to make all the payments. The taxpayer or the consumer must make his money um, as a result of uh, work over time for goods and services that are valued by other players in the marketplace. Not only that, but in the aggregate, the amount of money in circulation is not sufficient to allow all of the players to repay the interest that they owe. That is a good summation. Okay. Yes. So now let's turn our attention to inflation. The essential objection that people come up with when you present your plan is that it's inflationary. That is to have the Bank of Canada inject money directly to the federal government without the need for using a debt instrument would be inflationary, would cause the value of the dollar to fall or the asset prices to rise. Can you respond to that? There's a certain segment of the political scene, conservative or you know Republican in, in the United States, that immediately uh, gravitates to their talking point, which is government spending creates inflation. But when you look to the actual causes of inflation, they have almost zero to do with uh, benefits that were provided to citizens that were affected by COVID. What are the true causes of inflation? Well, in Canada, if you compare uh, the beginning of 2020 to the end of it, gasoline prices uh, rose 33%. So energy prices, uh, there's also a knock-on effect. Anything that involves transportation, 
those costs are going to go up. Food costs are going to go up. So those, uh, so those were the kind of the multiplying factors with regard to, uh, with, with energy. Also in the uh, natural gas and electricity prices, they went up too. It looks like it was kind of uh, corporations taking advantage of a political talking point. They artificially raised prices. You also had extreme weather events during the growing season that also caused grocery prices to rise. And then on top of that, you've got the Bank of Canada injecting billions of dollars into the banking system, creating liquidity through QE. Again, banks, as soon as they have more money, what do they do with it? They speculate. That was very evident. If you look at the stock market from the beginning of the pandemic to present day, you can see that's generally there's an upward trend. And on top of that, real estate in Canada uh, about 20% of all new home, like I'm talking residential home sales, were um, purchased by investment companies, of course, backed by banks. And so that artificially inflated the, the price of uh, property values. And, of course, right now we're seeing the correction and, you know, those your inflated value will come down next year. So those are the actual the main causes of inflation. They had almost zero to do with the amount of money that the government spent on people um, for COVID relief. Uh, so there's always that aspect with inflation, too, that, of course, if you have, uh, you know, increased the money supply and you don't increase the goods and services, then you're going to have an inflationary effect. But with regard to government spending, it was very minimal. So it's that old adage, you too much money chasing too few goods and services. So there's a lot of factors that are involved in inflation. And one thing that's never mentioned in textbooks is just simply corporate greed. It's something that's the way these people have taught to think. So this is not like an evil thing. It's it's just people trying to maximize profit because that's what they've been trained to do. Human nature everywhere is pretty much the same. So we're all going to be looking out for our own interests. What we're criticizing is the institutional setup. Exactly. So let's turn our attention to hyperinflation. The uh, examples that you've got explained on your website include Zimbabwe and Weimar Republic, Germany. Hyperinflation is not simply the action of government to inject more money into the economy. The true root cause of hyperinflation is a collapse in the productive capacity, whether through war, destruction, illegal activity, and a breakdown in the society. Is that correct? That's also a good summary. There's always some underlying economic collapse. It's not the result of a responsible government printing money. It's uh, got to do with corruption. In addition, with regard to the Weimar Republic, it was to a large degree the excess uh, reparation claims uh, from the allied countries and the massive money creation by private speculation aided and abetted by a private central bank. There were studies done by the Cato Institute of like 56 different occurrences, and they all basically came to the same conclusions that you just did, Ed. In the next part of our talk, Jeff and I discussed various straw men. Is debt the essential problem? Is money creation the problem? Is a faulty GDP measure the problem? Here's the way Jeff handled those questions. It's funny in our discussion, we sort of come across all of these straw men, like Debt itself is not the problem. The problem is when money is issued and there's no collateral. There's nothing to back it up. In a macro sense, yes. 
Similarly, the increased money supply is not the problem, as long as that money supply is represented by an equal growth in productive capacity, goods and services exchanging hands. Exactly. And you can actually look in the past record. Inflation in Canada went up uh, just normally, like in around the 2% level. During that same time, the money supply uh, expanded quite a bit. There's a conventional argument that the low debt-to-GDP ratio in Canada reflects a good ability to repay the debt. In the next part of our interview, we discuss the validity of the GDP measure, and then Jeff re-emphasized that debt itself is not the problem. The GDP represents the productive capacity of the country to repay the debt. That's a fallacy, at least partially, because the GDP measure is uh, a false construct. It doesn't really take into account all of the, the detrimental things that the average consumer has to deal with and all the waste. Uh, it doesn't represent our, our productive capacity. So if, if there were a fair measure, would that not show up the debt as a real problem? Well, again, the debt in and of, of itself is not the real problem. It's the fact that we've allotted this extraordinary privilege to a private entity, namely commercial banks, to collect all this money from us. So at bottom, the real problem is? It's the interest and where it's paid to. So if if the interest is actually being paid to the government, well, that goes right back to us. All right. Well, so far in our discussion, we did a recapitulation of the main interactions with regard to money creation. And the essential takeaway from that is that the average consumer, the taxpayer, is on the hook to pay the interest to private institutions. And so there's a channeling of an extraordinary amount of wealth from the general populace into private hands through the necessity for these interest payments. If a greater percentage of the bond issue were absorbed by the Bank of Canada, then we could obviate the need altogether for these interest payments. Correct. That's a, a good characterization. Okay. The second thing that we discussed was that the immediate objection to the PMC plan is that it will be inflationary. But you gave a summary of the true causes of inflation. The third point was about hyperinflation. Here's, uh, again, where we have to address some misconceptions. And you've got two narratives on your website that people should read with respect to Zimbabwe and Weimar Republic in Germany. Well, Jeff, given this landscape of the institutional players, the way we've sketched it out, PMC is making what seems to me to be a very modest proposal. It says, let's take the operation that the Bank of Canada is already engaging in, that is creating money uh, as keyboard entries, to fund federal government programs. The first thing that recommends it is that, that it's something that's already possible in, in existing law and existing practice. The second thing that recommends it is that it's incremental and gradual. This thing really requires just a mandate from Parliament to increase the allotment of direct issues of securities from the government. So the Bank of Canada Act has been amended several times, but the preamble to the Act has not changed. We still exist to regulate uh, credit and currency in the best interests of the economic life of the nation. 
Jeff, did you support the initiative that Comer, the Committee on Monetary and Economic Reform in Toronto, uh, carried out to take a legal action against the Bank of Canada to try to force them to follow their mandate and to fund infrastructure projects with money that it would create? And please comment also on the fact that the legal initiative actually failed because it was eventually quashed back in 2017. Yeah, I did uh, follow it. And actually, I have uh, somebody from Comer who's now with PMC who was privy to the actual lawsuit. They actually were quoting the wrong section of the Bank of Canada Act in their lawsuit. So that's one of the main reasons why it failed. So actually, the best person to talk to would be uh, one of our PMC associates, Bill Clancy. Basically, what Comer was asking the Bank of Canada to do is actually what PMC is asking the Bank of Canada to do, but in a much simpler way without changing any existing laws. Their precedent has already been set. Is there anything else that you want to draw the listeners' attention to? I would just ask them to actually visit the website, navigate along the header bar and look under hyperinflation and also look under our national debt. They're easily navigable and easy to understand. Is there some essential message in pointing people to these resources? Just so that they know that uh, it's possible to have a different financial system. It didn't come to me easily. It took quite a bit of reading and quite a bit of research to really recognize the true impact of this. And I think that's why the system continues to plague us, because it is so opaque and difficult for people to understand. I only can put so much energy into this, and education is where I'm putting it. That makes sense. One thing that compelled me was a book I read by Stephen Medford Goodson. He's the one that connected the dots. He wrote a history showing that the thread that runs through all of these major historical events, right from the Roman Empire into Renaissance period to the Napoleonic era to World War One, World War Two, and right into the modern era, the, the central explanatory factor is indeed this monetary question. That's the thing that's missing from all of our high school history textbooks. Yeah, isn't that interesting? If you go to the PMC website, the proposal is a 15-minute affair. All of the explanations are done in plain language. All it requires is a little bit of effort. I'm trying to keep this as simple and communicable as possible. That brings to a close our episode for today. If you go to the show notes, you'll find a good summary of the topics that we discussed. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe check the show notes and visit our website, progressivemoney.ca.